isolated cabins in the middle of the woods. Gruesome, bloodthirsty killers. It's an age-old horror trope. However, their basis, the true cases of those murdered in cabins, is no mere horror trope. It's a reality. In today's video, we'll be taking a look at just three of those cases. And while each has a slightly different backdrop, the chilling nature of the crimes remains the same. Lou Ann Cox. Before the 1990s, Lou Ann Cox was described as a hard worker who took care of herself and kept her house clean. She was also noted to be a collector of Pepsi memorabilia, and friends and family characterized her as someone who was, quote, pleasant, friendly, and always tried to help people. But Lou Ann's life began to spiral out of control when her marriage ended in the late 80s, and those around her began to notice a dramatic shift in her behavior. With her marriage over and her divorce underway, Lou Ann started to sell all of her belongings and use the money to purchase drugs. Looking back on it, her mother, Mary Oxley, believed this lifestyle began when her daughter was injured in a serious traffic accident and started taking heavy pain medication. From here, she thought the addiction grew. Lou Ann would repeatedly ask her mother for cash, usually borrowing $20 each time, but Mary worried that the money she handed over was going straight to drugs, so she set about buying the items that Lou Ann needed, be it gas or food. In 1995, just one year before she was found dead, Luan was arrested for possession of cocaine. At this point, her father was in the final stages of terminal illness, which only served to exacerbate his daughter's drug addiction. Family described her as turning up at the hospital in poor physical condition and a changed demeanor, recalling how she would arrive with black eyes, appearing beaten up and strung out. This substance abuse that Luan struggled with was just the beginning of her deterioration, however. The worst was yet to come. On March 9th, 1996, at 11.30am, a worker at the Prairie Creek Lake in Indiana noticed something in the weeds near the motorbike trails at the southwest end of the reservoir. Initially believing someone had just carelessly dumped trash of some sort, the worker went to investigate and was horrified to discover the nude body of a woman wrapped in two blankets. When authorities arrived on the scene, they found that the victim had been badly beaten and strangled with either a thin rope or a wire, and had been dead for around six to eight hours. She had been sexually assaulted, although there was no DNA evidence to collect from her body. It didn't take long for her to be identified by the Pepsi tattoo on her left ankle as 42-year-old Lou Ann Cox. Just two days after Lou Ann's body was found, the staff at the Mabel's Motel called authorities to tell them that she had recently stayed at their establishment. The motel was made up of a series of log cabins available for overnight lodgings. Reportedly, the alert staff at the motel had noticed Lou Ann's image in the paper, so they had reached out to law enforcement. 
A room cleaner had discovered several blankets missing from one of the cabins, and then uncovered a blood stain on the mattress. These findings were located in the cabin adjacent to the one Lu An had rented. According to staff, the 42-year-old had checked into the motel early on Friday, turning in her room key that evening. However, she appeared again at the front desk at 3.30 on Saturday morning, eight hours before her body was found, and asked for the key to the same cabin. When staff turned her away, they noticed her walk off into the darkness, in the direction of the cabin. However, this lead was not as useful to investigators as they might have hoped, since by the time they arrived on the scene, it had already been cleaned away by the hotel maids. Later DNA tests showed that it was Lou Anne's blood on the mattress, but the DNA of the murderer, or anyone else who might have been present at the time, was not recovered. Within days, police located and took in for questioning the man who had rented the adjacent cabin where the blood was found. The man, unnamed in articles pertaining to Lou Anne's murder, had arrived on Friday and left around 10am on the morning of Saturday the 9th of March. This unidentified man admitted to knowing Lou Anne and also agreed that he had stayed in the cabins at the same time as she. However, the questioning ended when the man demanded to consult with an attorney. His car was searched in connection with the investigation, but this turned up no new leads for authorities. He was never arrested or charged in relation to the murder and passed away from cancer in 2004. Law enforcement soon discovered that Luan had visited several taverns on the south and east sides of town on the night of March 8th. She ended up in the Village Inn, 221 East Jackson Street by 1.30am. According to witnesses, it was here that Luan had an unpleasant and angry exchange with an unidentified man. This stranger is separate from the one brought in for questioning and is described as being 5 foot 9, slim, white, and in his early 30s, with shoulder-length brown hair and wearing a leather coat and cowboy boots. Luan's niece, Tara, who was interviewed for an article by the Star Press in 2014, described how a cousin had taken her to that scene years later. According to Tara, this cousin seemed to know a lot of details about the people Lu An hung out with and said that on that night, Lu An had smacked the man she was having the heated exchange with and he had responded by telling her, quote, she would get hers later. It's unknown if the cousin witnessed the altercation or learned about it later and whether or not they spoke to authorities regarding this information. While police received two tips concerning the identity of this stranger from the tavern, no link was ever found between either of these men and Lu An, although it is noted that one of the men had a history of battery arrests. For a time, Lu An's case was linked to that of 27-year-old Kim Weatherspoons, who was murdered in February of 1996. At one time, the pair had lived within just one block of each other, and both had been sexually assaulted and strangled. They were also both connected by prostitution and drug charges. In later years, the link between the two was ruled out. Since then, Luan's case has grown cold. It received some brief spotlight in 2014, when Ball State University had criminal justice and criminology students working on a handful of cold cases with law enforcement. However, nothing new came from this further investigation. Luan's mother, Mary Oxley, passed away in 2014, having never seen justice for her daughter's brutal murder. 
Before that, both she and her niece Tara voiced their concerns that the police weren't taking the case seriously and that they felt unsatisfied with the investigation. Luan was laid to rest in the Elm Ridge Cemetery, not far from the grave of her father. To this day, her case remains unsolved. The Hill Axe Murders of Ardenwald In the spring of 1911, 33-year-old William Hill, his wife, 33-year-old Ruth, and her two children from a previous marriage, Philip, who was eight, and Dorothy, who was four, moved into a cabin with two rooms, one for sleeping and one for living and dining with a kitchen attached. The cabin was located in rural Ardenwald, a neighborhood in Portland, Oregon. By all accounts, the Hill family was well-liked and just like any other family in the area. William, a pipe fitter for Portland Gas Company, was described as a hard worker who kept to himself, while Ruth, who had divorced her previous husband on the account of him being a drunk, was a former society girl whose brother and farmer were prominent Portland lawyers. Reportedly, on June 8th, Ruth went to consult with her father and was, quote, disturbed about something but it's unknown what exactly this conversation was about. Other than this scrap of information, there is nothing in the family's movements prior to their murders that could indicate that there was anything wrong. On June 9th at 8 a.m., Sarah Matthews, the wife of C.W. Matthews, who lived next door, approached the door of the hills. She knocked, noticing the unusual quietness about the cabin. Sarah's husband had pointed out to her earlier that morning that he had not seen William leave the property to catch the interurban streetcar that took him to his job. This was most unusual. As Sarah waited for a response from her neighbors, she noted that all the windows in the cabin had been uncharacteristically covered with cloth. When a response didn't come from the hills, Sarah peeked in through a gap in the window and was alarmed to see a four-year-old Dorothy's bloodied body lying on the floor. The county sheriff, Ernest Mass, was quick to arrive on the scene after Sarah and C.W. reported the crime to local authorities. Inside, the house was a bloodbath. At first, police couldn't find William's body, but they soon discovered it under Ruth's. It had been extremely well concealed. The pair were found entangled in bed. Ruth had been struck with an ax twice, while William had been bludgeoned. The children were killed next also with the axe. It was determined that the family had been killed around 12.45 a.m., indicated by a broken clock in the cabin. A neighbor also reported that his dog began barking around this time. There are mixed reports on whether Dorothy alone was sexually assaulted or whether both she and her mother were. Regardless, the crimes were excessively violent, with each family member suffering massive trauma to their faces and skulls. Bloody fingerprints were found on Dorothy and on Philip's arm, but this did not lead authorities to a suspect. The axe used in the murders had been left in the home, propped up at the end of Dorothy's bed. It did not belong to the Hill family, and the scent dogs tracked it back to the front porch of a man named Joseph Delk, three quarters of a mile away. Bloodhounds were used at the crime scene to help find further clues, but they unfortunately turned up nothing. Law enforcement was quick to narrow down motives. Although some jewelry was missing from the cabin, other cash and valuables were left untouched, excluding robbery as a motive. It was believed that sex was the motive behind the gruesome crime, 
and that possibly a paedophile was responsible. There were several suspects in the case of the Hill family murders. Edward Ramsey, a vagrant who lived in the woods, trapping animals and stealing food, was the first person authorities took note of when they began to investigate, as it was believed that he had been the subject of complaints in the neighborhood about a man lurking in the area. However, Ramsey was later cleared of any involvement in the murders. In May of 1917, a man named William Riggin admitted to shooting another man in October of 1915, and during this, he claimed to have witnessed the Hill family murders. Riggin said that he met William Flynn, an alias of the vagrant Edward Ramsey, and a Mexican man who went by the nickname Brown in Oregon City, where they hatched a plan to rob local homes. According to Riggin, he waited outside the Hill's cabin for 30 minutes, during which he heard children screaming inside. Without further questioning, however, Riggin's story began to transform. He changed his tale, stating that he actually participated in the robbery and the murders with Ed Ramsey, not with Brown and William Flynn. The two accounts that Riggin gave to authorities were riddled with inconsistencies regarding the cabin itself, plus other important details. It was later decided that these confessions could not be considered credible, as William Riggin was deemed to be mentally incompetent. The third and final suspect in the case of the Hill family murders was a man named Nathan Harvey, who was originally charged with the four murders in December of 1911. Harvey was a 55-year-old nursery owner who had been in a land boundary dispute with William and was also someone with loose connections to various crimes. In 1984, an 18-year-old woman was found murdered in a strawberry patch on Harvey's property. Later, one of his brothers shot their mother then drowned himself. As police questioned neighbors of his, several women claimed that Harvey had made, quote, improper proposals to them and also insulted them. When Harvey was arrested, Sheriff Mass stated that he had absolute proof that the 55-year-old had taken the last train to Ardenwald on the Interurban Railway, which arrived in the neighborhood at around 12.25 a.m. on the night of June 9th. Two witnesses came forward beforehand to say that they had seen the man in question exit the train at that time on that date. Around the arrest of the nursery owner, there was much support from locals, but also those who believed Harvey was innocent. An anonymous landholder told the Oregonian newspaper that Harvey was, quote, feared. However, despite the evidence and theories surrounding Harvey's connection to the case, the charges against him were ultimately dropped just a week after his arrest, pending further investigation. In February of 1912, a judge formally closed further investigation into Harvey. Even with the charges dropped and the investigation closed, Ruth's brother and father continued to believe that Nathan Harvey was responsible for the murder of Ruth and her family. Allegedly, Ruth's brother went to visit Harvey at his nursery office and, quote, the gun just went off. No charges were ever brought against the brother for this accidental shooting. Many online sleuths have pointed out that Harvey's son, Corwin, who was 17 at the time of the murders, went on to have issues with statutory rape and paedophilia, even serving several sentences in prison. He reportedly had a preference for boys. It's been speculated that perhaps Corwin was his father's first victim, or that even Corwin was responsible and his father covered it up or helped him one way or another. 
Outside of the theories in relation to Nathan Harvey, it's widely thought that the Hill axe murders of Ardenwald are connected to several other axe murders from around this time. However, over a century later, it's likely we will never know for sure what truly happened in the case of the Hill axe murders of Ardenwald. Catherine Namath. On October 12th, 2002, 43-year-old Catherine Namath stopped by her parents' cabin at Loon Lake, Wisconsin, to get some food from the freezer. Catherine was the only one present, as her parents had left earlier that day to head down south for the winter months. Catherine, a medical technician and volunteer EMT in Elko, radioed from the cabin at around 7.12pm, saying, quote, This is 96. There's a man with a raincoat, and he's scruffy-looking, and and then the radio went dead. Her husband David and their son Nick arrived at the cabin at around 7.44 p.m., 32 minutes after her final broadcast. David had tried but failed to contact his wife, and so took it upon himself to investigate what was going on. What he did not expect to find, however, was Catherine lying outside the cabin, having been attacked. She was still alive. David asked her who her attacker was, but the 43-year-old told him she didn't know. She passed away while being airlifted to the nearest hospital. Described as a kind, caring person, Catherine had spent October 12th running errands. According to her husband, David, Loon Lake was her favorite place. When authorities arrived, they took in the evidence right away. It was clear that Catherine had been chased through the property, trying to fight off her attacker. She had received multiple stab wounds during the struggle. DNA of the unknown assailant was recovered from the scene, but there has yet to be a match. Police launched into an extensive investigation, canvassing the area and interviewing friends and family. Eventually, their inquiry into Catherine's murder led them to wonder if the case was linked with another, that in which Catherine and her husband had been involved. David Namath was the fire chief of the Elko Fire Department, and he was currently being investigated alongside Catherine for embezzlement. Both husband and wife were being looked into, and the fire department's office records had been impounded as evidence. When Catherine found out about the investigation, she called the sheriff's department and stated that she wanted to come in and give full disclosure on some of the details. It soon appeared suspect to police when, two days before she was due to visit law enforcement and give information, she turned up dead. Eventually, David pleaded no contest to theft, disorderly conduct, and obstructing an officer in the case. While police continued to have their suspicions about Catherine and her link to the investigation, no connection has ever been found. Once the embezzlement case was closed, law enforcement found that they were no closer to catching the 43-year-old's killer. David, for his part, claimed to not know who killed his wife. Police tried to garner more information using what they call a John Doe hearing. A John Doe hearing is used for investigations which are thwarted or impeded and can be used to force witnesses to testify in a secret hearing. This helps law enforcement get information from people who may not be willing to come forward. Two men who knew David attended one of these John Doe hearings, but authorities believed they were not telling the truth. One of the men was later charged and convicted of a false swearing. The two men were friends of Matthew Becker, a fire department employee who had initially confessed to the embezzlement. 
Reportedly, these two men also had a thorough knowledge of the Elko area, having spent time there hunting. In 2007, 24 people were DNA tested. This was then compared to evidence which was found at the crime scene, but the attempt to find answers in Catherine's case was in vain. Another article from 2008 claims that a man declaring to have information on the murder died before he could be interviewed. The man, unnamed, passed away from natural causes, age 42. His meeting had been scheduled for February 22nd, and on February 21st, police entered his home in Pittsville, seizing a PC, among other things. This seemed to garner no new information, however. Due to his sudden passing, it's unknown what connection this man had to the case, if any at all. According to police in 2012, they did have a theory as to why Catherine was murdered, but they didn't have enough evidence to bring charges, and so they kept the theory under wraps until they did. However, that day has yet to come. Perhaps there is hope for the future, but as of 2020, the case of Catherine Namath remains unsolved. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you are still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective podcast linked below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.